0: of Turkey, Torgat Ozal arrives in the U.S. tomorrow. He's expected to ask Washington for economic and military aid for his country. Turkey is a NATO ally. Turkey returned to democracy in 1983 after three years of military rule, but today much of the country still remains under martial law. Last week, American playwright Arthur Miller and British playwright Harold Pinter traveled to Turkey for the International Pen Club. Pen promotes human rights of artists and writers around the world. At a news conference in Istanbul at the end of their visit, Miller and Pinter condemned Turkey's record on human rights. Not surprisingly, says Arthur Miller, who's now back in this
1: country, the news conference was officially off-limits to Turkish journalists. It doesn't astound me. Uh, It is a rather extreme thing to have done because they do close down newspapers at will uh, with a phone call. Uh, It could be for a day or an issue or more. And so this is really uh, right down the middle as far as uh, their practice is concerned.
0: When you talked to the journalists there in Istanbul at your news conference, you were telling them of systematic torture throughout Turkey. What, what sort of evidence did you gather during your five days
1: in the country for that? Well, this is a, uh, a deduction made. You, you, can't go into, you can't get into a prison, of course. And uh, we met with many people who had been tortured in the last four years and some of them uh, severely enough to require uh, repeated operations for correcting uh, what had been done to them. Uh, We also met with uh, one man who was forced to watch his brother being beaten to death, and uh, I repeatedly asked if torture was going on now and was repeatedly told that it was, but that they couldn't substantiate this, so that's fundamentally what we were going by. Yes. However, uh, the Army has uh, been claiming in the past that it takes place in the 45 days of detention which uh, the law permits the police to do, uh, at which time the, uh, the uh, victim is in the hands of the police, so, say the, uh, so says the Army, and not in their hands. However, they control the country so completely that this explanation is not really very persuasive. Turkey has, though,
0: a democratically elected government. That changed in 1983, away from the military government.
1: Yeah, uh, that eliminated, however, two of the main parties uh, who were forbidden to take part in the election and are still outlawed. You're saying, are you, that
0: uh, there has been no substantial change in human rights abuses since the election in 1983, no no change from the, the way the military government conducted
1: things? I think it has improved. It has improved. Uh, yes. I think that uh, this is from the evidence of the victims. They say it isn't as bad, but uh, when you talk to people who are the wives, let's say, of people in jail now for two or three years under eight-year sentences for having joined the Peace Association, whose husbands were indeed tortured at that time, two years ago, uh, and uh, these offenses are equivalent to let's say uh, you're having signed a petition for the nuclear freeze in the United States then you have to say uh, you improve from what to what it just isn't enough Uh, it can't be called a uh, democratic regime and that's what they're calling it it's a bit I think on the whole like uh, the last years perhaps of uh, the Franco regime Uh, a little bit like the uh, best times of the Mussolini regime. Uh, Everybody's looking over his shoulder, but uh, most of the time he doesn't see anybody back there. But he wouldn't be surprised if they were. And it would be perfectly legal if they were. We are supplying Turkey now with uh, some close to 800 million a year. It's the second largest aid program, second only to Israel, that we have and it's under the uh, rubric of uh, supporting a democracy. Well, I'm I'm not saying we shouldn't support them, but uh, we shouldn't lie about it. And that's substantially what's happening now.
0: Talking with us from New York, playwright Arthur Miller.
2: know that we have had problems with uh, Elliot Abrams, Assistant Secretary for, for Human Rights, who has uh, expressed opinions that our uh, statements on Turkey have been too harsh and accurate uh, Those of you who may not know the thank you. Oh, excuse me, one minute. Yeah. If there's any press here or anybody taking notes for press or story, as I understand this.
3: I'll tell you why it's off the record. It's simply that these really are, uh, this was a crash uh, thing I did because I haven't had time to do any more. And fundamentally, it's a, these are my notes, more or less. And Harold Pinter and I decided. Uh, sometime toward the end of the visit that the best course might be for us to issue a joint statement of some kind That and I said that I would uh, since I was the only one taking notes maybe I would do it and then he could uh, see it and make whatever changes he thought he wanted to make and then we would issue it so he hasn't seen this in fact I've barely seen it myself so uh It's a very rough attempt to uh, come to grips with this. The first uh, question is, uh, why Turkey? And uh, the answer is that we, uh, of course, spend in Turkey something on the order of $900 million a year, which is second only to the aid given Israel. Uh, And I'm told that it's going up. Uh, That's, of course, basically a military commitment. Turkey being on the borders of the Soviet Union and Bulgaria and close to the cockpit of the Middle East of Lebanon and bordering also on the Mediterranean, it's a very sensitive military area. And uh, therefore, a uh, situation has developed have been allowed to develop there, Uh, which is very difficult to change because the blackmail is always possible. Namely, that if you don't treat the military right, you may find yourself in a difficult position vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. And that's what basically this whole problem is all about. We decided to make the visit to Turkey, not primarily to conduct an investigation of human rights there, which would be an impossibility in so short a stay, but to demonstrate to the writers and artists and the others held in prisons that the outside world was aware of what was happening and cared about it. From the members of International Pen, this was to be an act of moral solidarity, which we hope might also have some effect on the military, which governs the country. The parliament, elected two years ago in the first election since the coup of 1980, in effect, runs the economy while the military remains in charge of internal security, the police, censorship of books and newspapers, and in short, everything that substantially matters. We had hoped to talk to people of every political view, including the prime minister and the martial law commander of Istanbul. The prime minister, it should be added here, that Istanbul and Ankara and a number of other cities are under martial law, which means that no ordinary... Judicial restraints are laid upon anything the government wishes to do. Uh, The Prime Minister was away in Saudi Arabia, however, and the commander declined to see us on the ground that the government was now in parliamentary hands, which is, of course, not quite the case. We did manage, however, to see publishers and editors of conservative newspapers which support the regime substantially, and we believe that we were able to sense how the government rationalizes its positions on various issues. We did get to see uh, in a memorable evening the American ambassador and, uh, who gave a dinner in my honor as well as uh, some of the political staff of the American embassy. The first thing to understand about Turkey now is that some two years of terrorism preceding the coup of 1980 piled up some 5,000 dead at times as many as 30 people a day were killed, a slaughter that by all accounts appeared to be the first stage of a real civil war. This comes from people on every side of the political fence. There is no question about the welcome, apparently, that the, that the army received when it first intervened. I should add that it was the third intervention in 30 years. Every 10 years, Turkey has a military government. Uh, I'll get into that later. Justification for the military takeover rests upon this fact, something no side seems to deny. At the same time, however, according to some people, including Mr. Demarel, who was prime minister at the time of the coup and who we interviewed, the military for two years had found it impossible to curb the violence while in a matter of weeks after it took power, there was an amazing peace. In this view, the military thought to allow the chaos to expand until their intervention would be gratefully accepted by everybody, which indeed it was. It is probable that support for the current arrangement is fed by the fear of the return of the violence should civilians really run things again. The second important point about Turkey now is its strategic position on the Soviet border to the north and the chaos of Lebanon and the Middle East to the east. After Afghanistan, it does not take a rabid anti-Soviet-tier mentality to understand that a coherent social order in Turkey is greatly to be desired. The question in this regard is whether, after Iran and South Vietnam, one can any longer imagine that real strength lies so exclusively with the support of the military. In fact, we heard often that within the military itself was a growing feeling that they had kept power too long now, and that the disaffection of the people was beginning to turn itself against the military for the first time. For one thing, there has been a fall in purchasing power of over 50% in the last period. In our rounds of interviews, it must be said we could not leave Istanbul and Ankara to get some first-hand feeling of the poverty of the country, which by all accounts is terrible. It is also important to understand that the traditional perception of the Turkish army is comparatively, uh, as compared to other underdeveloped countries, is unique. This army, for one thing, is immense, over half a million men, and is based on conscription rather than a permanent professional corps, and is thus composed of every sector of the citizenry. It is not the army of some Latin American dictatorship, for example, and the proof of it is that in the 1962 coup, even the left applauded the army's intervention. The army finally fought the war of liberation long ago, in effect, and is perceived as being on the people's side. But there are those who claim that this perception is also changing. The longer the army remains at the helm of the government. In any case, the army has always maintained that torture, as an example of one excess, was done by local police and not the army. A citizen may, under present constitutional law, be kept by police for 45 days incommunicado, Without notification of family or lawyers, and it is in this period that most of the tortures have taken place. In fact, the army has itself brought prosecutions against some 15 cases. But we have also been told that, in truth, the army has merely stood in the background, refusing to stop what it knew and knows goes on. What is of interest is that the army in the Turkish case takes pains to try to separate itself from a state of terror which in other countries armies do not at all mind openly benefiting from as it helps them keep order. Turkey's democratic tradition is very recent, the multi-party system having begun in the 1950s. This fact, among others, is held by some Westerners, most notably the U.S. State Department, as justifying what can charitably be called a relativistic approach to violations of human rights in the country. The beating of people under arrest, in effect, is said to be an old Turkish custom, and the commander of one, one prison is quoted as saying that his prison was run under Ataturk principles, which mean that a prisoner is to be beaten, but not to death. From this angle, the current situation is an improvement over the past, especially the past two years. From all accounts, left and right, there has evidently been some improvement in the last year or so. but. This is not our business to confirm or deny as we can't know in any first-hand way what the past was like, let alone what the future holds. The question for us was simply what we saw in front of us and whether and how it related to norms of democratic conduct. In fact, some do not at all agree that things are better, at least in one very important area. They believe that for the first time, the Turkish army has now dug itself in very deep into the very fabric, legal, and in terms of custom and usage of the country's governance, something that was not at all the case in the two previous interventions in the early 60s and 70s. What follows here is not an exhaustive list of infractions of democratic norms, but merely examples that repeatedly came up during our talks with the editors, journalists, physicians, writers, academics, lawyers, trade unionists, and businessmen with whom we talked. These are by no means all leftists, Marxists, or revolutionaries, but in many cases social democrats in the European sense, or in that same sense, conservatives. And if one asks how it is possible that so wide a variety of viewpoints could find themselves to one extent or another opposed to current practices, it's because, quite obviously, the coup cast a net so wide across the whole society as to tangle together a mass of otherwise quite separate ideologies. To sweep up terrorists and their arms was one thing, but the arrest of the entire directorship of the Turkish Peace Association was another. From former ambassadors to the president of the Bar Association to the best-known public personalities, the association comprised the intellectual elite of the country. It was a political trial without question, and worse yet, was held under laws, borrowed and acknowledged to have been borrowed from the Mussolini legal code. These were mass arrests, mass sweeps reminiscent of the 30s in Europe. As an example of ex posto procedures, the Peace Association commemorated the poet Nasim Hakmet, by all accounts the great figure of Turkish poetry in this century and a Marxist, but one who was disillusioned, it is said, in his last years, and held this commemoration with permission from the martial law commander. Istanbul, having been under martial law, to combat terrorism two years before the putsch. Nevertheless, the Peace Association was arrested and tried for breaking martial law decrees passed after this commemoration, and and people drew long sentences for organizing and participating in it. Ali Sirman, a journalist, was actually sent by the then foreign minister to Addis Ababa to attend a meeting of Asian-African writers and the government paid for his ticket. But he got an eight-year sentence for having conspired abroad with a Marxist foreign enemy. Fifteen of the lawyers who defended the Peace Association in court have been arrested and are on trial themselves. It is illegal, incidentally, for a lawyer who has been charged with any infraction to continue practicing so that a mere charge in itself can put a lawyer out of business. We were able to attend the trial of a lawyer named Kazan, Three judges in military uniforms sat on a high tribunal in a vast building which also houses a prison and a hospital. Along one wall, four or five journalists were seated while half a dozen photographers with flashes roved at will around the courtroom right through the proceedings. At all times, five or six soldiers stood with hands clasped behind their backs facing the judges while a sergeant supervised. The defendant's testimony is capsulated by the chief judge and his version is rapidly typed by a young woman under the tribunal, and this forms the record. Frequently, much time is taken up by defense lawyers objecting to the judge's summation of the testimony, but the judge has the last word as to what the summation should be. However, on this day, the whole thing ended after a desultory half hour because other defendants had simply failed to show up. A postponement was announced until a month hence. This odd method of trying a case is doubly so when one recalls that the defendants are supposed to be confirmed dangerous enemies of the Turkish people and the Turkish state. Yet they are permitted to appear or not appear. At the same time, they are under indictment and many for capital offenses. We were able to meet with one trade union leader, for example, who is appealing a death sentence and is free to move about the city and without bail. Many have been sentenced to eight years in prison And some of these have gone through horrible tortures but are still walking around waiting appeals. This is not mere absent-mindedness on the part of the system, however, which has to resolve periodically to announce that hangings, which does resolve periodically to announce that hangings have been carried out of terrorists held in prisons. Different people give different figures, but one man, formerly a high government official, told us that there are officially 73,000 prisoners, all told, in Turkey, of which some 2,000 are political. In addition, 7,000 are alleged to have been arrested as terrorists, some of them as young as 16, most of them under 24 years of age. More than once, people have asked what happened to the adults who led them into violence and have never themselves come up for trial or condemnation. Thus, there is even on the part of those absolutely horrified by terrorism... A certain amount of sympathy for these young people, some of whom were picked up off the streets for scrawling slogans on walls, others for having harbored fleeing terrorists in their homes. Of course, none of the above above figures can be verified as long as the press is forbidden to inquire into such matters of real substance. Some 48 young terrorists have already been hanged, it is generally believed, with 70 more condemned and awaiting execution. There is, of course, no real possibility of appeal or re-examination of such cases. On many occasions, we inquired as to what political formations these terrorists belong to, but the answers were strangely lacking in definition. The Communist Party as such has been outlawed in Turkey since the early 20s, and no one seems to believe that there is any buried pro-Soviet tendency in the country. Indeed, the left element in the leadership of DISC, the union movement that has been disbanded, escaped not to Russia, which borders Turkey, but to Europe, France, and Scandinavia. The leaders left behind, incidentally, are more of the centrist type, and it was one of these who has the death sentence hanging over his head. From one of the former prime ministers came the answer that there were as many as 60 different factions among the terrorists, from the Maoist and Albanian-inspired to others that no one out of Turkey has ever heard of. The image this answer provoked was that of Lebanon, accepting that in Turkey, no religious element is of any importance in political fracturing, which, however small, is something of a blessing. To continue with the question of an observation of democratic norms, people giving statements hostile to the government can be sentenced to 24 years in prison, less if the statements were given to a Turk. At lunch in restaurants or walking down the street or at dinner in private homes, It was almost inevitably pointed out that our discussions of conditions might well fall under these rubrics. For this reason, we cannot mention any names. The censorship, as no one denies, is to all practical purposes total and condign. With a phone call, a newspaper can be shut down for one issue or two or more, should it have published anything the government doesn't like. The largest and presumably most acceptable newspapers in the country have been closed from time to time, and to our question as to whether they could print the truth, every editor we've talked to either shrugged, smiled at our naivete, or simply said no. Some 1,500 academics have resigned, 60 to 70 have been sacked outright, and 10,000 remain in their jobs. Those who wish to excuse this academic shakeout claim that under its new reorganization the government has tried to force teachers out of the main universities and into the less prestigious schools in the countryside and that it was to escape rustication that these teachers left the system. But the other said uh, that this exi- exiling of teachers is precisely designed to rid the system of the less tractable who are almost always the ones being transferred to the sticks. A Mrs. Illichak was one of those justifying these academic policies on this ground. She's the wife of the Turkoman newspaper publisher and a a twice-a-week columnist who is very widely read. She herself was jailed, and the newspaper itself closed down at one point, and she agrees that a net of anti-subversion may have been cast too wide. But she's glad not to have wandered into leftism herself as a result of her sad experience, and rather than blame the stringency of rule on the military, points to the political timorousness of democratic Turks who have failed at every turn to speak out against excesses. Her emphasis is on the terrorism that nearly brought the country to ruin, the nests of anarchy in the universities, which still claimed some independence before the coup, and in general, on the democratic intellectuals themselves. Her brightest models for all things seem to be American, And she even believed sincerely that the new centralized control over all universities and colleges by a single bureaucrat was a direct imitation of the American system. When Miller informed her that this was not the case, she pointed to the regents and governing boards of various universities who, in her mind, were there to keep order. And when Miller persisted in saying that there was no central control of all universities in the United States and that they, in general, operated independently of one another, she shrugged off the subject but she was clearly not lying, only under a total misapprehension based on her wish for some American precedent in the matter. According to the academics, the universities are being run like junior high schools in other countries with absolutely no independence whatsoever, either in the way they are run or in the, uh, what is taught. Mrs. Illichak is only remarkable for her candor and probably represents a significant fraction of opinion which is both critical of the unfreedom and ideologically either confused or helpless to counteract it. It would not occur to this kind of person to ask the question, whether the question on the national agenda might be the means to strengthen the democratic forces in the country, rather than how to suppress the slightest possibility of a return to terrorism. An army, after all, does not merely move into the streets, but into the minds of the people, and it is hard to get them out, as hard to get them out of one as of the other." There was also a symptomatic sense in her answer to Miller's concern that the examples of Iran and South Vietnam not be repeated here as a result of American support for the military with merely lip service paid to, the building, to building respect for democratic norms and institutions. She saw nothing wrong with identifying America with the military in a country where the military was still respected as the very soul of the nation. She could not deny that so much of what was happening in the country was undemocratic and repressive, but when pressed would again and again revert to the terrorism which had opened the Pandora's box in the first place and which alone was to be blamed for everything afterwards. Again, one sense that she is representative, quite probably, of some important sector of opinion which neither rejects democracy nor is willing to struggle for it, and while disliking a uh, a military rule on principle is reassured by its presence in practice. In short, Better this than chaos, that a road forward into real democracy is not a question being debated by anyone, as far as one can tell, in a short but intense visit. Uh, Needless to say, the tutelage of the United States does not include suggestions on our part as to what real democratic procedures are or how they might be arrived at. We apparently teach how to manage weapon systems, and that is about it. We had already been aware that the Peace Committee trials were never based on any actions, but on allegations of treasonable thinking, and Mrs. Illichak confirmed this, saying that they were in a kind of permanent state of McCarthyism. Nevertheless, she felt things were improving. The obvious must be added here. In a situation where the slightest negative criticism can be prosecuted, it is not possible to be sure how sincerely anyone is speaking. For all one knows, Mrs. Illichak's real views, or those of any other editors we interviewed, might be far less charitable toward the regime or far more supportive, for that matter. One editor, for example, and a very important one, spoke to us with remarkable and and even passionate agreement that the human rights situation was very bad indeed. But in the next day's paper, he wrote a mocking and satirical little piece about our visit saying that no one knew how or why we had come and by what motives, hinting at some secret and hostile sponsorship if not a plot. One book publisher, a leftist it would appear, but not pro-Soviet, said that the police will suddenly arrive in his offices and seize all the copies of a new book but that he manages usually to keep some hidden. It must be said at the same time that one can buy books by Marx and Lenin from distributors, and the bookstores openly display the works of Brecht and works by Turkish writers on the left. The preaching of Marxism, however, is prohibited. One has to assume that this crazy quilt of permissiveness and prohibition is part of a mental lethargy and an uncertainty as as to what Turkey ought to become. It may be a spotty totalitarianism, but it can kill you all the same. Once again, in reference to democratic norms, The right of petition for redress of grievances is central to any democratic society. But when, on a certain date, and I don't have the date, a petition was delivered to the military government of Istanbul, (coughs) signed by several thousand European and American intellectuals, far fewer Americans, incidentally, than Europeans, asking what certain repressive measures, that certain repressive measures be reversed, the petitioners themselves were arrested, and their trials in what has... Uh, become customary uh, were were endless, and they continue. The grounds for the prosecution are that it is not a petition they presented, but a propaganda leaflet uh, whose distribution, not to speak of its printing in the first place, is clearly unconstitutional. One of the accusations in court against the DISC union movement was that it so often demanded and won the highest wages for its members. This accusation was seriously put as solemnly received. The mind fills with questions in Turkey, and one of them that persists is why the United States and the media are so rightfully and righteously outraged at the Polish government's contemptible treatment of solidarity and Lech Wałęsa, and so utterly uninterested in Bashturk, a leader of DISC, a legitimate group of unions, which were illegalized and disbanded, their leaders jailed, and as in his case, sentenced to death among other reasons, his having gotten the highest wages for his people. <clears throat> Mr. Bashtuk and 11 other defendants presented a deposition stating that they had been terribly tortured in prison. But this deposition managed to disappear from the court records. However, a judge, mindful of his duty, insisted on looking through these records and indeed found that a memorandum had been entered to the effect that such a deposition had been received. Nevertheless, tortured or not, Mr. Bashtuk, after four years in prison, continues under death sentence, awaiting the results of an appeal. One hears that a person in one of every five families has been accused of something and is awaiting judicial decision. In more than one case, we heard the same statement that after being released from a few years in prison, men lose 90% of their friends for fear of contamination with them. Some insist that they gain new ones thereafter. But this has had a wishful sound to us. The important editor, who went face-to-face, agreed with us, and then the next day published a mocking attack, had volunteered that the Turkish army was gradually becoming more and more like the usual Latin American junta army. He added that he has frequently telephoned authorities to get someone freed on legal grounds who has been arrested on flimsy or even non-existent regulations and has succeeded. There is the important elderly poet, prosecuted as a Marxist, which he was for most of his life, and who now bitterly declares to us that the Soviets drove Turkey into the arms of the Americans by demanding two provinces at the end of Second World War. He is speaking of Stalin at Yalta and also in direct demands by Russia on Turkey. Another quite opposite consequence of this attempted aggression is the contention repeatedly produced at trials of, for example, the Peace Committee people, that the Russians have never given up Peter the Great's dream of having warm water ports, like Istanbul. At almost any hour of the day or night, one can see Soviet merchant ships passing through the Bosphorus, heading out around the world. So this makes that demand seem real. The same elderly former Marxist poet, now so bitter against the Russians, who he doubtless feels betrayed his confidence and left him and his generation barren of ideological hope or direction, Addressing Miller in particular, stated that the United States was not a democracy because no democracy, democracy could have so imperialist a foreign policy. When Miller pointed out that England and France had also borne the same contradiction, it was mutually, mutely agreed to change the conversation. But in a few minutes, he told a story, which is probably widespread in Turkey, of the impoverished man, father of a starving family, whose door opened one night to reveal a stranger who offered him a guitar, which, if he plucked one string, would bring him instantly a bag of gold. But the plucking of that string would mean that another man somewhere would immediately die. Thus, the worker in the United States, each time he draws his dollar, steals it from the hungering mouths of unseen men in the third world, for each dollar some poor man far away must die. In his late 60s, this poet probably expresses a common bitterness toward the United States, which it is believed could banish their political repression with a gesture, instead of conspiring with local tyrants to keep him unfree. To the stranger, however, it also implies an unacknowledged feeling of powerlessness to change Turkey's situation by Turkish efforts. This is not a universal notion, however. Many of those we spoke with insisted that the Turks alone could make any real change. These were, in many cases, people on the left. But Mrs. Ilichak, who is a rightist, said the same thing as did Mr. Echevit and Mr. Demirel, former prime ministers. Whatever the different attitudes toward it, the American presence is certainly on everyone's mind. The other universal question is amnesty for political prisoners. If, as is said, one in five families has someone either in jail or somehow touched by this repression, an amnesty would be the one, would seem to be the one action that might begin the healing of a bitterness which can take all kinds of forms apart from what has been mentioned. At a get- dinner given us by members of the Writers' Union, many of whose members were treated with particular brutality and are still under indictment awaiting sentence, one slightly drunk author a man in his 40s wearing an unbreakable grin on his face and a fiercely ironic stare would suddenly sprinkle an otherwise friendly conversation with a cackling laugh saying, someday maybe I will be a success and come to America to see if I can help with human rights. Not more than a minute earlier, he had been glad to see us here or so he said. He was most probably a man of the left for whom the idea is intolerable. That the United States, or Americans at any rate, should reap the benefit of being Turkey's military masters and her heartfelt moral savior as well. Resentment of America and Americans does not stop at political lines, since it is at bottom the prideful anger of the subservient. And there is no doubt that these feelings can be found among the right, as we shall show in a moment, and and even in some of the military itself. We had wanted to speak with the American ambassador at some point on the visit, and were glad to receive an invitation to dinner at his residence, a dinner in honor of Mr. Miller. It turned out to be the climax of the week, not counting the government's banning of any reportage of our final press conference, but that was not to be announced until after we left. We were looking forward to meeting Robert strauss Hupe, the ambassador, if only to get the American position from an authoritative source. The dinner, formal and surprisingly large, with about 22 guests, happened on the evening following another which had been deeply moving. The young wife of a painter and the fiance of a theater director had opened a world for us which is doubtless a common experience for hundreds of turkeys, political prisoners, and their families. The painter's wife, who we shall call Sylvia, is about 28, with a witty smile and large black eyes and dark hair and effects an insouciance which could soon evaporate as she talked of her life now. This is all a comedy, she began, and now I am refusing to participate any longer. Once again, and despite her need for help, she was expressing resentment toward her de- dependency on the, mil- on the prison authorities, on the beneficence of the military government, and now, ironically, on us, who could sympathize but do very little to change her situation. She had a small child, had been married three years, separated for more than two from her husband who was in prison for having joined the Peace Committee. It took some persistence to get her to tell the facts which are doubtless engraved on her brain. The husband was arrested and tortured in Istanbul, then for some bureaucratic reasons sent to Ankara where he was tortured a second time, then back to Istanbul. She had been refused a passport which prevented her from leaving the country and finding work as a journalist or publicist. She had worked all over Europe and the Middle East was a chic and sophisticated woman who had no overwhelming political feelings. It was not only her husband who was in prison, but she too, in her native city, where her bad luck can be matched 10,000 times by others. By the end of the evening, what uncertain hopes she had in us moved her to produce a dozen or so sepia drawings by her husband, which he had given her during their five-minute visits every 15 days. He had caught her face in her longing expression her undressed body, and her flesh on his. They were overpowering drawings, that overflowing drawings, that packed the 18-by-32-inch paper with a sensuous power that was almost palpable. In one picture, the artist is looking through a small rectangular opening at himself and his wife together. Again, he was convicted not of any action, but of having joined the Peace Association, which had been headed by ex-ambassadors, great attorneys, and some of the most prestigious people in contemporary Turkey. He had been sentenced to an incredible eight-year term, of which he had already served, too. We had no plan of what to do once we met the ambassador, but as the American and honored guest, Miller found himself momentarily alone with the ambassador in one corner of the high-ceilinged white sitting room in his residence, and immediately began telling him about Sylvia and her imprisoned husband and his terrific paintings. Somewhat to Miller's surprise and pleasure, the ambassador, a very diminutive man in his 80s, but spry and alert, was at once caught up, quickened by this human and pathetic story, and in fact seemed possibly for the first time to perceive that this sort of romantic suffering was being inflicted on political prisoners, for he is quite famous in Turkey for his absolute deference to the military, with whom he has identified American interests completely." and would therefore be likely to regard these prisoners simply as either deanimated enemies of policy or unfortunates at best had fallen into the wide net. Now he wanted to know the painter's name and and his wife's and seemed interested in at least inquiring about them. It seemed a good beginning. All that Miller knew about the ambassador was that he had been a speechwriter for Barry Goldwater. In this environment tonight, he seemed to be reaching for something like a cultivated even literary air. And this, it seemed, might be all to the good. And indeed, as the company moved toward the table, he confided to Miller that there might well be a declaration of amnesty in the near future, in effect, uh, to, in effect, to some degree, giving an impression of a buried and cautious liberality. In any case, the picture of a fiercely militant writer seemed not to fit him at all. In fact, he was an Austrian, a Viennese, naturalized in 1927, a background close to Miller's own forebears. His rosy coloration and full head of silver hair, the blue baggy eyes with their soft drooping lids, the natty dress and intelligence, all spoke Austria, Vienna, more precisely the coffee house and its ageless search for the cynical power motive that always underlies the ideal. Taking his seat across the table from the ambassador and to the right of his wife, Miller thought how functional the elegance of the table was. Its hidden purpose was to protect, uh, uh, to protect power by enforcing good manners and empty <laughs> conversations. But the image of the painter in his prison, severed as though by a knife from his wife's body, would not go away. But how could such an untidy thought be introduced here, especially at a dinner given by his country's ambassador in his own honor? Harold Pinto was seated on the same side of the table as Miller, but half a dozen places down so that he was invisible from Miller's position. But the soup had hardly been served when Pinto's baritone could be heard above the general tittle of talk, and Miller caught the loose relaxation in his voice, that lovely sound of wine. Meantime, Madame Ambassador to Miller's left, a native of Sri Lanka, less than half her husband's age, a beautiful dark-skinned lady, was drawing with her fingernail on the tablecloth a map of Ceylon showing the demarcations between the religious factions who were trying to tear the country apart in these years since the British had left along with their order and their law. As the meat was served, a roast veal, Pinter's voice rose higher, and now Miller could make out that this was a cross-table discussion with Mrs. Illichak, whom they had met, of course, at the offices of her husband's newspaper some days earlier, and Mr. Trinka, the American deputy chief of mission, an unsmiling, tight-faced man with tinted glasses and a kind of knife-like self-assurance, a man who knew exactly what he thought and wanted. Miller could not make out what Pinter was saying, but from across the table at a diagonal, he could hear both Mrs. Mrs. Illichak and the deputy chief saying, well, that's your viewpoint. We have to see it in the round. You are only seeing part of it, and so forth. The ambassador, forking his veal, was not so much as glancing at uh, Pinter's way, for the sound of the playwright's voice had reached a level of debate in the House of Commons. (laughs) Madame Ambassador, persisting nobly in her geographical drawing, maintained an admirable (laughs) aplomb, and her husband made a last attempt to engage his neighbor in some kind of conversation when Pinter, with open rage, shouted across the table at (laughs) Mrs. Illichok, That is an insult and was meant as an insult, and I throw it back in your face. (laughs) The woman, as I learned later, had told Pinter that while Turks would have to remain and face the realities of the day, he would go home and doubtless put it all into a profitable play, implying that this was Pinter's underlying reason for coming here at all. She was red in the face, a round, pouting face topped by permed, blondish hair. Two days earlier on our leaving her office, she had suddenly produced an alleged biography of Marilyn Monroe and asked Miller whether he thought, as the book had heavily intimated, that she had been murdered by the CIA, a question put with the same vacant curiosity as if the victim were a horse or a car that the intelligence agency had purposely wrecked. The ambassador, once Pinter, had flung his fury across the table at Mrs. Illichak and inferentially the deputy chief of mission, who shared her views, touched the side of his crystal water glass with a silver spoon and brought silence. I wish to welcome Mr. Miller as our honored guest, he said, and went on to extol the Americans' contributions to the theater and ended with a glance around the table, which came to rest for a moment on Pinter down at the end, returning once more to Miller. This demonstrates that all viewpoints are welcome here. And then, pointing at the floor of his residence and his voice thick with emotion, Here is democracy, right here, and here we are proud of it. Imagine this happening in a communist country, whereupon he thanked Mr. Miller for coming. Mr. Miller understood that it was up to him to respond to this toast, and had Pinter not exploded, it would be a simple matter of lathering the air with a few customary phrases in the hope of cornering the ambassador later and trying to face him with some of the painful facts that he had been witnessing here. He was, after all, in the United States Embassy, There was a protocol whose mysteries he had never plumbed and the ambassador had been nothing but an engaging host to him. But as they sat there in the gleam of the room his mind managed to pop up the image of Sylvia on an empty bed staring at an empty pillow and her husband on his bed hardly a mile away from her in prison with six more years of this stretching away for an offense which had he been a Turk Miller would surely have committed himself. So he was pleading less for others than for his putative Turkish self and with a man with whom, despite everything, he felt a certain affinity whose basis he could not name. He began by thanking the ambassador, at which strauss huppe his cheeks reddened and his eyes immensely saddened, seemed relieved. It was indeed an honor to be so welcomed here, he went on, but it was impossible to ignore the conflict taking place in the country, some of which had exploded right at this table. Not knowing how to proceed from this point, Miller fell back on what he did know. (laughs) We are playwrights, and playwrights are different than than poets or novelists or perhaps any other kind of writer. We deal in the concrete. Perhaps that is why there are never very many good playwrights. An actor has to be moved from point A to point B, psychologically as well as physically, and you cannot move an actor in general. You can only move him in particular, for good reasons that are understood. We do not know what the situation in Turkey was last year, so perhaps it's better now. We don't know what it will be. We do know concretely what we've seen and what we have seen has no tangency whatever with any democratic system in Western Europe or the United States. I wrote about people in the crucible who were jailed and executed for no known actions, but for what they were alleged to be thinking. So it is here. You have hundreds of people in jail for their alleged thoughts. We are told that Turkey is moving closer and closer to democracy, and that may, it may ultimately, and that may ultimately turn out to be so. No one can say. But what it is now is a military dictatorship with certain merciless and brutal features. We are helping Turkey, and I am not saying we should not. But the real strength of a state in the last analysis is the support of a people, and the question is whether the United States is inadvertently helping to alienate the people here by siding so completely with those who have deprived them of their elementary rights. We know there was a terrible outbreak of terrorism, but how wide a net can a net be thrown before it can be properly called an oppression and a tyranny? The truth is that for hundreds in the Peace Association, not a single action has been alleged, let alone a terrorist action. At a minimum, an amnesty is called for. As Miller continued, he thought he saw the eyes of the ambassador flattening with something like astonishment or horror. But at the same time, the man seemed to be listening to a kind of news, surely not political news, for he must have known even better than Miller what the state of affairs was, but news of an emotion, of an outrage, and this on the part of people who had every reason to feel successful and at one with themselves and the world. After 20 minutes, Miller stopped talking. (laughs) There isn't a Western lawyer who could come to this country and see what is happening in these military courts who would not groan in despair. The American part here ought to be the holding up of democratic norms if only as a goal instead of justifying their destruction as the only defense against chaos. And in this vein, he shut his mouth. The ambassador now turned his gaze on the faces at the totally silent table and gesturing to Mr. Inonu, the son of a former prime minister and now head of a political party, had asked if he would respond to Mr. Miller's remarks. Mr. Inonu, around 60, balding and myopic, a tall, former scientist, actually, with a tall tall scientist, actually, with a gentle face and long hands, which he now softly clasped above the table, said that he, in general, could not help agreeing with Mr. Miller's views and wanted to add his welcome to that of the ambassador. (laughs) Miller could hardly believe what appeared to be his victory. The ambassador now gestured toward Mrs. Illichak, who was at his right. She simply shook her head, her eyes rounded in shock. A bearded journalist was then invited to speak, but he chose simply to rub his hands together and smile and welcome Mr. Miller to Turkey. But during during Miller's speech, as Pinter would later reveal, this man had exchanged happy glances with Pinter. And so, with no more takers... All rose as the ambassador said, as the ambassador said something to the effect that it had been a fascinating dinner, and Miller, before he could stop himself, added, "This is one you won't forget soon." <laughs> to which the ambassador responded with an uncertain smile that was not without irony, however. The company now began arranging itself in chairs for coffee in the sitting room, and Miller sought out the deputy chief of mission, sensing that in this man was the center of power in the place. But he had hardly sat down beside him when from behind him he heard once again the rolling, awesome baritone of Harold Pinter. (laughs) Near the entry hall, he was just turning away from the ambassador, who, half his size, was shouting something and walking abruptly toward a guest who stood astonished, staring at the British playwright who came directly to the approaching Miller and said, not without a certain Pridefully apologetic tone, I have insulted your ambassador and have been asked to go. <laughs> Miller, forced by Pinter's soaring emotions to become more practical than ever, immediately wondered about transportation <laughs> and found a guest whom he had met at a gathering of Peace Association supporters in someone's living room a few days earlier. A cancer surgeon who had studied in New York and was quite conservative, it was said, but sympathetic with the imprisoned members. He was happy to share his car, but the French ambassador intervened, and apparently at the risk of some displeasure to Mr. Houpet, his colleague and friend, carried the two riders off to his residence for some champagne and conversation. On the way out of the residence to the black Peugeot, and alone with Miller, Pinter reported reported the ambassador saying something to the effect that there, would be a lot of, there could be a lot of different opinions about anything. And Pinter had replied, not if you've got an electric wire hooked to your genitals.
4: <laughs>
3: At which the ambassador had straightened and said sharply, sir, you are a guest in my house, upon which Pinter had concluded that he had been thrown out. <laughs> Pinter was brimming with admiration for Miller's peroration as Miller was for Pinter's righteous indignation without which he, would not imagine, he could not imagine himself launching out on his 20-minute essay, and it was thought that they might form a team which could go around the world <laughs> visiting many other American embassies and thereby change history. <laughs> throughout, <clears throat> throughout, the visit, throughout the visit, they had purposely declined interviews, fearing to be wasting time answering the demands of one journalist after another, and, promising, and promised instead a press conference on their last day. It was held in the building of the Journalists Association, was attended by perhaps 25 or 30 men and women, plus a television crew from United Press International, which services cable networks in the States. What was said at the press conference was more or less the same as was said at the ambassador's dinner. Miller and Pinter both understood that Turkish journalists would be forbidden to print more than scraps of this kind of opinion at best, but felt there was no other course but to speak candidly and not to do their censoring for them. The brunt of the message was the violations of democratic norms in the country. Next day, in London, they learned that the press conference itself had been banned by the government and that an investigation was to be launched into the whole visit. No one in Turkey knows in which direction the regime is actually heading or even what its real intentions are. Thoughtful people point to the deepening institutionalization of the armed forces, as was said, within the political system and claim that the army is now above the parliament in authority and will remain there. This may or may not be true, but there is apparently not to be a debate on the subject in this burgeoning democracy, since any implication against the armed forces is a banned subject and will not appear in print, period. It would seem to behoove the United States, therefore, as Turkey's main support, to insist upon the opening of the press to this debate, to make it a condition of further support that the censorship be ended forthwith. This is an obviously minimal demand, but without a free press, there can be no certain progress at all. Not in the courts, the police, or academia, for a certain depoliticalization of the people has taken hold, by all accounts, a sense of the futility of struggle, which is a direct (coughs) consequence. Of the regime's hard grip, it would be wrong to characterize Turkey as an unmitigated Hitler or Franco or Mussolini-type dictatorship. But in a country of 50 million, with its main centers still under after five years under strict martial law, and an annual injection of nearly one billion dollars, most of it going to the military, the development of democratic institutions will inevitably, in the long run, be crippled and be made and made use, useless. Turkey is now an ally as a military base of immense strategic importance, but it ought to be an ally because of shared values as well. We believe that democracy needs to be unleashed in Turkey, that its people do indeed wish to stand with the West and ought not be deprived of the benefits and values that belong to a Western people. That's about it. I didn't have a chance to read it till now, but uh, there's more to be said, I, I had to skip certain things, I just didn't have time to do anymore, but uh, I'd like to add to it, uh, because there are interviews we had which were significant, I think, and I couldn't mention them because I simply wasn't time, I had to do this in a, in a couple of hours.
4: Mr. Pinter expurgates it, will
3: it become... Oh, he'd love it record. all. He'll, he'll add a few things, I'm sure. Uh, did you get any idea that the ambassador would convey your, your message to any Kurdish authority? I, I tell you, you know, this could be uh, romantic, wishful thinking, but uh, obviously he knows what's going on in the country. But his reaction to my story about this painter had a certain naive openness to it. Now, he's a pretty tough character. This guy's been around for 100 years. And I suddenly got the feeling, my God, I wonder whether he knows that these are actual people involved in this. Now, of course, those emotions pass as necessity dictates. So I don't know how long that'll hang with him, but... He did sort of apologetically say to me, "I didn't quite get it in here." That uh, we have, you see, he said, "We we, how do you put it?" He said, "We can't push them too far; we'll lose them." The 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 military. And uh, I said this to Harrison Salisbury yesterday. And He said, "Well, Jesus, get rid of them!" <laughs> but see what. Well, It really, I think, is becoming a serious going to be a serious political problem because we are now by every side identified with not the government but the military government. See, we spoke with uh, Echevit and Demarel, who incidentally are under ban for 10 years and are legally not allowed to talk to anybody about politics. And if they do they can be jailed for it. Now, both of them were very open with us, and I—they both would—I haven't written that part either. Uh, they plus a Muslim political leader had a lot of newspaper photographers brought to the house to show that they were being—they were receiving us. I suppose because they thought this would communicate to their followers that they existed. See, normally their pictures aren't allowed in the paper and that they were still carrying on. Uh, it apparently is the case that uh, the, 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 the ocean is closing over this country in a way that means that the real grievances of the people will have to explode somehow or another. It can only get worse. And we, the American policy, you see the. It's, To my mind, it's only the, t- the peak of the iceberg, the human rights thing. That's the consequence of the policy. They have to hold these people in place in order to make an aircraft carrier out of that country. But there are, gr- there are real grievances that have nothing to do with civil rights. They've got to do with the economy, which apparently is catastrophic. It has to do with union rights and labor problems and God knows what which have, of course, to do with liberties, but they're basically economic problems. And nobody can discuss those either. It's a lid that is as tight as probably, not Hitler, but probably Mussolini's time. That part of it. And I think if we, anybody wants to make a difference, instead of a general civil rights uh, plea, if somehow the thing could be specified as a Freedom of the press demand. I mean, for $900 million a year, you ought to be able to get a reasonably free press. That seems to be a, a reasonable demand to make because everybody's going to say, well, these, these people in the jails, they must, they must be done something, as they always do. But you mean that all... See, because you cannot meet an editor, and this is no exaggeration, of any coloration who won't say the same thing, that they, it's almost impossible to run a newspaper. They know that one sentence out of line, and the phone rings, and they're out of business for that day. And That means all their advertising revenue goes down the drain for that day. And you know, they're not that rich. The papers aren't that much read. In fact, the readership of the newspapers has collapsed because everybody knows it's, there's nothing in it. So they, on all parties, would support this, and once you got that going, maybe that debate might begin, which could finally make some difference with the government. You know, if
5: you want to focus on one issue, I'm not sure that this is really the one issue you should focus on, because uh, actually Turkey had an extremely free press. Uh, then I don't know how many years ago I was there for a few days. It was really surprising. that extremely free press, uh, and the, and the functioning democracy which then deteriorated into terrorism and the uh, and the uh, uh, military coming in. Uh, so in a sense some people can blame the let's say the excesses of the press for Yeah but you can't hope of democracy. Uh, Now so I'm not sure that That's the issue,
3: that, that would be a better one to focus on. Well, accepting, you see, they are apparently indes- undecided about how to get rid of that peace trial. See, it's now generally admitted that this was such an extreme injustice that what, one of the reasons that these trials are going on forever, according to what we were told, is that they don't know what the hell to do about it. They just don't know how to resolve this thing. They can't very well say, after people have sat in jail for two years on eight-year sentences, that it was okay. Well, the Constitution forbids amnesty for political crimes. They're going to have to change the Constitution to create an amnesty. That's another clinker, you see? And uh, therefore, I say the simplest way may be and there are better experts than I am on Turkey, but that, that seemed to me to be something that you could get agreement with from many parties.
1: At the beginning, you seemed to be objecting to release on personal
3: recognizance, and, uh, and I don't think you really feel that way. Without defending the charges, it's surely better that those people be out on personal recognizance than that they'd be waiting for trials in jail. Well, what seems odd about it? And I've never solved the problem. I never got anybody there giving give me an answer. You see, Mr. Kazan, Kazan was on trial, came there. We were with him. He'd stay there half an hour. There was some conversation. He left. And I said, well, what happened? He says, nothing very much. The other defendants didn't show up. It was Alice in Wonderland. And I said, well, how long is this going to go on? He says, we don't resume till the middle of April. Yeah, but many of Martin And his by the way, he can't practice the law. So it's not better. He cannot practice his profession in the period that he's under indictment. Furthermore, if he has the misfortune of living X miles away from Istanbul, any time they summon him, he's got to go right down to Istanbul and then go back up to where the hell ever he comes from. Because they come from all over the country. Yes, but. It's, it's, not, you know, cases. it's no regularity it's like it in, in it. Yeah. yeah, but not always. My point is that it seems completely unsystematic. I, I was sitting having dinner with a man who's been convicted and has a death sentence passed on him. I said, Are oh, you want on bail? He says, No. he's already been tortured and he spent four years in jail he was one of these union leaders incidentally that man was one of the centrists in the disk union the leftists left they got out of Turkey now Turkey has a border with Bulgaria and Russia but they didn't go to Bulgaria and Russia they went to Paris that leadership and Scandinavia as I mentioned brutally tortured, have not even been come to trial yet. uh, That's a whole generation
4: of Turkish youth that nobody knows about. We have to fight to have the International Red Cross get admitted to those prisons, to have backfinding
3: groups from various bodies get in there and find out what's going on. You gave figures here of political prisoners. I have no way of knowing. Well, this is is what I got from three people, people, but they admit that these are ballpark guesses, because... And this is why I say, see, it all keeps coming back to me that if you had a reasonably open press, these issues could be raised. And you could start to uh, confront somebody and say, is that true that there's 70,000 or 40,000 or 10... See, now it's the piece of the grave. You cannot... And certainly the television and radio is absolutely out of sight. There is simply no discussion whatsoever. Therefore, I don't know where to begin excepting there. You're absolutely
4: right because defendants have testified in court about being tortured and the press has been been
3: there. Well, look, the best example is uh, Mr. Pinter and I stand up there in a public place, make certain statements, everybody's writing them down, and the whole thing is banned. (laughs) Nobody's allowed to read about it. And they are the second largest beneficiaries of our aid. Yeah. It's quite strange. Why
5: are people not interested in hearing about the condition that is as horrible well, as anywhere well, For one reason, the United States government is doing everything it possibly can to quiet the talk. The I think so. Government.
2: Asked him what the embassy's view of your visit was, and I had a very, very different rendition than yours, as, as you might expect. He said to me, Well, you'll get the other side anyway, so I'll tell you our side.
0: So, I, I was particularly interested that uh, he said that, that Miller is, is a gentleman. We disagree with him, that he is a
5: gentleman. But Pinter was a drunk. <laughs> Thank so, God for Pinter. <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah. That, you know, not mentioned Jesus I, said, I mentioned that's, that yeah. right, I, of course you did and he yeah. mentioned it as well that she um, denounced you at the, at the dinner as if you want to help Turkish journalists you're going about it the wrong way he did not mention that neither Mr. Inuyu, the head of the, one of the Turkish parties nor one of the journalists' present would take issue with you and
3: the ambassador <coughs> cast far afield and could not find a single could no, no, that, well, that's what I've written
2: here is the truth. I'm going to try to, uh, if I can, get some members of Congress to ask for the reporting cables
3: on your visit. That stuff is generally not classified, and I think you would find it entertaining. As of course. As well as <laughs> of course. What they're saying about Yeah. Well, look, uh, he's not in any trouble. I mean, the ambassador, he didn't do anything, you know, particularly uh, unseemly. He conducted himself as you'd have to the those circumstances. He was in a tough spot. It's like when you're interviewed by two different FBI men. You know, they, they got one nice guy and one lousy guy.
4: I'm, I'm concerned about this report you received that your trip is
3: going to be investigated. I mean, we would all be very all I know about it. Involved. I heard I this in London. Into any
4: Do you think you
3: might I don't know how to. Well, this was from the London press, I think. Pinter told me that when I arrived in his house on, on Saturday, this last Saturday, that he quoted the press thing as saying that the, the whole press conference was banned and that uh, the, the whole thing was being investigated, was going to be investigated. I don't know any more than that. There's no New York Times reporter in Turkey. No, oh, sir. The British press. Uh, well, of course they can't control the foreign press. That's right. So they had a. They they had reports in the British press. And which, of course, they would wish hadn't gotten out, but they couldn't stop that. But this your press conference did appear in the British press. Yes. Does the Washington Post have a report yeah. in no. Turkey? Uh, Yes, he's a stringer there by the name of Mustafa, who I hope is all right as a result of all this, because he was very brave. He's also the reporter for UPI cable television. And he ran the crew that televised us, and that film went out with us on our airplane. And I'm told it was shown here in New York last night or the night before on cable television. That is our... See, he interviewed us after the press conference. We both sat down and said what I've said to you now. And uh, that takes a lot of guts. Now, this guy had worked for Reuters and various people in London. And he had decided to come back to Turkey and work in Turkey. Uh, And he he also asked some leading questions during the press conference. I don't know what... I said, well, what's going to happen? He said, I'm only doing my job. Of course, he's taking a very brave viewpoint. Was there, did the, was there a French reporter present? No. The, the world press is not very evident in Turkey. No. The Guardian has a man there normally, but I, I never met him. He didn't show up. I, I don't know where he was. you have the impression
2: that any...
0: Probably. Yeah. Just,
3: uh, there was this kind of, yeah. of fear. See, I, was, I, I Can- talked to uh, the man who wrote that piece in Today's Times, uh, Kim. Henry Cam, who's an old acquaintance of mine. He wanted to come to Turkey for the press conference, but he couldn't get on a plane from Athens where he's normally stationed because a lot of Greeks were coming home, to, that is, Turkish-born Greeks, for the uh, holidays. Uh, so he never got on, but I talked to him on the phone from my home in Roxbury two days ago. He called me, and that story you see is a result of that phone call. But at the Times has nobody there. Henry is the man for that whole area. About time and Newsweek, nobody. Nobody. The only foreigner was a Dutch journalist. Well, I don't believe anybody talked to us there.
0: What was the origin
4: of your trip, Mr. Miller? I think you mentioned it at the outset. How, how did you happen to get
3: involved? with this? I don't Well, they have been asking me from, Jerry asked me many times to go because the writers there felt that if I did go, I could uh, create enough stir that the cases would be noticed again because uh, everything is falling asleep. As usual, people get bored with these things. And uh, then Harold Pender popped up, and he's a member of the British Anti-Nuclear Movement, which is the counterpart of the Turkish Peace Association. And he knew much more than I did about the Turkish Peace Association because the son of the head of it lives in London, a Dr. Dikadem, his name is. And Mehmet Dikadem, who's uh, ill with cancer, and is still under indictment in Turkey, a man about 70 years of age, uh, was helpful in getting us around to see people and so on. Uh, Harold knew about that more. And he was very eager to go if I'd go. So I said, well, I'll go if you go. And so we both went.
4: Did you have any uh, contact with the university community?
3: Yes, we saw several professors. Uh, it's a devastated area. They accused the universities of being the nests of anarchism, and uh, he, Mrs. Ilichak and others said, "Yes, the controls over the universities are tight." That's a direct quote. They're very tight because the universities are not to be trusted. So they've turned them into nursery schools. Really, they've taken away all their independence. As I said, there's a certain number resigned. A lot simply uh, were fired. Uh, however, most of them are still on the job, and apparently they're just standing and waiting. Did you
5: get any inkling as
2: to what's happening in eastern Turkey? With
3: the Kurds? No, nobody talks about that. See, that's another complicating thing, though. I suspect it's that they're scared to death. There is supposedly a a deadly war, a war to the death, going on up there, but it's a prohibited area; nobody can go in. And uh, they are desperately afraid that the Kurds, uh, who are intrepid people, are going to try to tear the country apart. And uh, I know nothing about it any more than anybody else. Nobody talks about it excepting with some fear that this could again justify the military in clamping down.
4: Yeah. I mean the, of the circles of hell, uh, Turkey is who cares about the Turks? They've been killing each other for years incredibly cruel. Yeah. There's a kind of almost racial contempt in the Yeah. You know. did you did you find that as you would talk to people telling them that you were about to go to
3: Turkey, that that was a Yeah, there's a question, well why Turkey? Well one good reason is that we we really is a billion dollars a year almost. Yeah. And it's going to go up, they say.
4: It's strange that the racial contempt fits perfectly into Reagan's foreign policy.
3: You know, i tell you, this is a far... This really won't happen, probably. See, it's a crazy country from other points of view. It's a Mohammedan country, but Atatürk simply separated religion from politics completely. He just put a knife between the two and... It's lucky for them. At least they don't have that going. <coughs> but there is a Muslim fundamentalist party which has about 10% of the population. And many people said, you know, if this goes on too long, what's going to happen is that the irrationalism of fundamental, fundamentalist Muslim psychology could very well force people into a brand new channel. See, they're dammed up. We we call them a Western country, but they're being treated really like an Eastern country. I mean, it's hard to tell the difference in Turkey between that and, let's say, the worst abuses in the communist bloc. So they're not a Western country in that sense. You see, they're an Eastern country. Okay, at the same time, they're being... Everybody you talk to, right or left, will say the same thing. Look, we know what we are to you. We are an aircraft carrier. You hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. They're a, a base for missiles. Nobody would bother with us, excepting we adjoin the Soviet Union. Well, you know, maybe someday, God forbid, we talk to the guy who wants to be the Khomeini. And he's, a, he's an engineer who Worked in Germany at Mercedes-Benz for years, and he affects to be extremely religious. Although people tell me his main thing is that there's a Zionist plot, which is accounts for absolutely everything that's wrong with Turkey. But he's not not a fool. He's quite bright, and uh, he wouldn't bring that up because he had two Jewish playwrights in front of him. But. Uh, there was something about that, that room with those assistants he had there. Boy, those, those fellows are not doing this for the laughs. He's, uh, laughs. he's going somewhere, he thinks. Now, everybody says, oh, no, it's only 10% of the people. Well, I can remember when they were saying that about Khomeini. And, you know, if these people have no forward motion, or if the only thing we're offering them is, or they're being offered, is more of this,
1: I don't know. Have, excuse me. Go ahead. Have you been to any other countries uh, on this kind of mission at all? I, I'm thinking of uh, analogous places. Well, I'm I've been in the East Bloc. Morocco yeah,
3: might but,
1: be. Well, no, I
3: mean. Uh, not. not uh, well, I've, I've, I been in, I've been in Egypt. And uh, Egypt, Turkey's better off than Egypt, uh, economically, probably politically, even but the Egyptian way of doing this is typical Egyptian. It's uh, rather laid back. Uh, and that's the only... Well, I've been in Africa where there's, there's no uh, corresponding... It's quite a unique historical development. See, it's the last of a great empire, which is not... I mean, of a rather recent great empire. After all, they were at the gates of Vienna, historically speaking, not very long ago. And uh, there's, there's nothing quite like it. I'm not eager to go back there, but it is quite strange. Anyway, that's my message for today. Thank you very, very much. Are you going to probably It yes. very much if you do. Well, I might. Uh, I don't know.